Hello Upset Patterns listeners, this episode today is a little different than usual. As many of you know, my band The Benevolent Dictators released an album recently called Silent Revolution. It's eight songs inspired entirely by the 18th century Scottish economist and moral philosopher Adam Smith that we talked about in our episode with Nobel laureate Vernon Smith back in October. Well, recently I sat down with my bandmate Fraser Thompson to go behind the lyrics of each song, how they're inspired by Smith's writing, and how they fit into his philosophy in general. And that's what you'll be hearing today, with each song from the album played after each explanation. You can find the album for web streaming, digital download, and physical album purchase on our Bandcamp at benevolentdictators.bandcamp.com. You can also find it on iTunes, Spotify, and pretty much any other music streaming service. I'll put links to a bunch of these sites in the episode show notes, just so you can find them. So, without further ado, here's the director's cut of our album, Silent Revolution. Hey everyone, we're the Benevolent Dictators. I'm Will Compernal. I'm Fraser Thompson. And you are listening to the director's cut of our album Silent Revolution, the story behind the songs. The album was eight songs inspired by the work of Adam Smith, four from his book Theory of Moral Sentiments, and four from his book Wealth of Nations. And so we're going to give you a little bit of a sneak peek into how each of the songs fit into his overall thinking and the stories behind the lyrics. Smith obviously has a lot of different philosophies, but... He has these two books, and what would be a neat way to summarize those two books and how they bleed into the songs that we wrote? So the first book, Theory of Moral Sentiments, is probably the one that people today don't recognize as much. To the extent that anyone knows about Smith, even economists, they know about his book, Wealth of Nations. But Theory of Moral Sentiments was more his explanation about human nature and how we relate to each other, how we derive con- conceptions of justice, ethics, or beauty. Um, and then his second book, Wealth of Nations, which was uh, published in 1776, I sort of think of it as a foundational economics textbook written in very beautiful prose. Um, and so there he looks at human behavior largely driven through this motivation of rational self-interest, which is what is now uh the framework that modern economists use. Um, So he looks at why economies are rich or not at the time um, and the different nuances that kind of come with it. So the one book, The Wealth of Nations, sounds very capitalist or about self-interest, and the other one is about morality. Are those two in conflict? They don't sound immediately like they were written by the same person. Some people have theorized that there is a contradiction here because you have this version of mankind in Theory of Moral Sentiments that appears to be very ethical and based on sentiments and relating to each other, and then that in The Wealth of Nations is all about rational self-interest and we're all out for our own good. But, you know, there are a lot of different ways to see how these can be um, simultaneously relating to each other. And so one is that in our day-to-day non-commercial life, we do... Uh, interact with each other in a different way than we do in our commercial life. But also, commercial activity can be very ethical. Uh, And and one way to explain it is that when we appeal to someone that we want to sell a product to, we put ourselves in their shoes and figure out how how, what they want, right? Because in a commercial society where you have mutually beneficial, uh, peaceful exchange, to convince someone to buy your product, you have to understand what they want, and you also appeal to their own self-love. 
All right, let's get started with the first song on the album. It's called Fellow Feeling. And I think when you first told me that title, I didn't really know what that meant. Uh, I hadn't heard it before. So can you explain a little bit about what fellow feeling is? When Smith uses the term fellow feeling, he kind of uses it interchangeably with sympathy. Uh, Today, I think when people use the word sympathy, it has an implication of compassion or altruism. But for him, it was just the mechanism of us putting ourselves in the shoes of others. Um, And so kind of how he starts off the theory of moral sentiments is a good way to uh, really know what he thinks. Um, So he starts, "How how selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others. For this sentiment, like all the other original passions of human nature, is by no means confined to the virtuous and humane. And this actually relates directly to the lyrics, um, which in the second verse, or sorry, the first verse, say the fortune of others, as I conceive, not just the virtuous or humane, however selfish that I may seem. Um, And so it just, this idea that everyone universally in human nature has this ability an instinct to relate to others um, in a way that is not like a rational calculation, but just very much a part of our nature. That's interesting. And I wonder why Smith is thinking about how people relate to other people. Why was that something that was on his mind or, or interested him? I think because it's his the foundation of human motivation, any social scientist or moral philosopher at the bottom of it is trying to explain human behavior. And for him, this is just where everything comes out of. Um, And so a lot of his contemporaries would explain what appeared to be sympathetic or altruistic actions um, as still, you know, maximizing utility. So I'm nice to you because I expect reciprocity or I give love to my friends and family because I gain from their reciprocal love. But he goes, he goes a little bit more into detail to show that um, this is actually not necessarily out of self-love. Um, so he describes a lot of instances where it's clear that people are experiencing fellow feeling, but they don't really gain anything from it, and it's not necessarily rational for them to put themselves in the shoes of others. Um, so so what, what are some of those descriptions of the the instances of feeling that, because I, I, I sort of get what you're saying, but it's hard to picture an instance where you would feel something for someone else and there's no way that, that you're doing that out of out of some self-interest. So his quote here is, when we see a stroke aimed and just ready to fall upon the leg or arm of another person, we naturally shrink and draw back our own leg or our own arm. The mob, when they are gazing at a dancer on the slack rope, naturally writhe and twist and balance their own bodies. Persons of delicate fibers and a weak constitution of body complain that in looking on the sores and ulcers which are exposed by beggars in the streets, they are apt to feel an itching or uneasy sensation. And I think for me, it's it's really hard to explain a more modern day example. When you cry for characters in a movie that are obviously fictional, if something bad happens to them, why are you emotional? Like it, it doesn't help their experience by crying for them um it has clearly made you pretty sad um so you can't explain these actions by um by saying that it is out of self-love or you're maximizing your utility um and so this connects to then another verse in the song that is the stroke is aimed upon his arm uh and then there's the call and response of i shrink back and then gives the examples of the beggar on the street um and the dancer on the slack rope and so all these characters smith is saying are people that we we feel for naturally, 
even though there's there's no reason for that and that's what's sort of embedded in 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 this song yeah and then you know the example that that starts out uh our our song is uh someone mourning for the dead and this this kind of goes back to my movie example because when you cry for someone who has died especially if you don't know them and especially if it's in a movie or book and they're fictional what is the explanation for that if not for this fellow this fellow feeling this sympathy so his line is we sympathize even with the dead and overlooking what is of real importance in their situation, that awful futurity which awaits them. We are chiefly affected by those circumstances which strike our own senses, but can have no influence upon their happiness. It is miserable, we think, to be deprived of the light of the sun, to be shut out from life and conversation, to be laid in the cold grave. It is from this very illusion of the imagination that the foresight of our own dissolution is so terrible to us and that the idea of those circumstances, which undoubtedly can give us no pain when we are dead, makes us miserable when we are alive. And from thence arises one of the most important principles in human nature, the dread of death, the great poison to happiness, but the great restraint upon the injustice of mankind. Um, So there's a lot in there. And I think I'll start with the ending of it, which is that the great restraint upon the injustice of mankind. I remember reading this passage a few times and seemingly overlooking this, but what he's saying is that it is our fellow feeling with dead people, basically our thoughts of saying, like, man, it would suck to be that guy, that stops us from killing each other. That is the ultimate injustice of mankind. Um, and so before that, when he goes into this this description of, you know, we picture someone in their grave, it's cold, it's dark, they can feel no happiness. We just don't want to be that person. It Like, that would, like, what a bummer if you're dead. Um, and though when you mourn for them, you're not bringing them back to life, and especially if you didn't know them, what is the point of it? And, and so then there's there's one other thing, uh, you know, mentioned in the song. He he goes into a lot of instances of fellow feeling, but another instance in the, the quieter part of the song uh, is where we say, to share the amusement, amusement of a book or a poem and to enter into their sentiments just as if they were our own. The mortification when we jest and no one joins feels so instantaneous that it cannot be self-love. And so... He, he gives these instances where when we are done reading a book, um, but want to experience those sentiments as if we were reading for the first time, what do we do? We share it with a friend. And when they join with us, we are so happy uh, kind of vicariously through them. And when we tell a joke and no one joins, uh, we're mortified. And, you know, I can definitely relate to that. Again, these are instances of fellow feeling where we are even if we aren't the principal actor concerned, we are experiencing those sentiments um, by putting ourselves in the shoes of others. Cool. Should we take a listen? and? Yeah, let's hear that song. So I mourn for the dead Though they cannot hear my cries What good is it unnoticed? What good is it to try? From that fear of cold and darkness When imagined in that grave Give power to restrain The injustice of mankind
watching of others as I can see just the virtue next track, which is called Impartial Spectator, is also from The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And it has a, some lines in it which I think are some of the stickiest lines in the album. I kind of find myself hearing them in my head more often than, than any others. And those lyrics are, To be lovely, but not just to be loved. Not only loved, but lovely in your eyes. Where does that come from? So his line from Theory of Moral Sentiments is, Man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely, or to be that thing which is the natural and proper object of love. He desires not only praise, but praiseworthiness. And so his explanation then for what people are seeking is not only uh, fame and, and love, but it is to be the worthy beneficiaries of that attention. Um, and so this then ties into his idea of where we get our ethics, um, because there are a lot of times, we all know the empty feeling, um, you know, when we, we get praise that we think is, is not worthy. If you cheat on a test or if you pick up a wallet on the street and, and take that money, um, it's, it doesn't necessarily give you a good feeling, even when someone is not looking. And so that's the idea of the impartial spectator, is that when there isn't an external judge of our actions, either the other person in a two-person exchange or an actual judge, we still have 
kind of a, a hypothetical onlooker that judges uh, the propriety of our actions. And so the impartial spectator is what would someone with all the information given, what would they think of our, of our actions? Would, they, would it be deemed lovely um, or would it just be kind of an empty love? So the impartial spectator is, is Smith's solution to the problem of you know, not knowing whether what to do is right or wrong. Is that a good way to think about it? Is it kind of like a um, the golden principle? What's it called? The, the golden rule? The golden rule? Kind yeah. of like that? I think that that's about right. And it, it is just this idea of, you know, everyone has a different impartial spectator and everyone has a different conception of what is right or wrong, but it is still kind of a best guess at whether we should deem our actions worthy of praise. Um, and so a line from the song, the emptiness of fame when the public misconstrues, fills me with anxiety, because uh, you know it's not true. And this is singing to the our own impartial spectator. It, it, it's just like, it's a very hollow feeling when we get fame or positive attention, when we know that, let's say, we, we plagiarize something, or we, uh, for a number of reasons, uh, not worthy of the, of the attention because the public has a, has a different understanding of our accomplishments than our impartial spectator does. Kind of an internal moral compass. Exactly. Cool. Let's take a listen. How am I to know if what I do is right or wrong? I'm seeking approbation from the need to get along and to be lovely. Not just to be loved Not only loved But lovely in your eyes Tell me how it seems From the outside looking in I want to be Not 
This is the title track, Silent Revolution. The last two songs were from the book Theory of Moral Sentiments, and this one is from Wealth of Nations. Smith describes lots of ideas which are maybe everlasting, but Silent Revolution sounds like it's a, he's describing some historical events. So what is he talking about? Was there something, was there a real revolution going on in Scotland at the time? Yeah, so what I'll say first is that this this whole passage was what inspired the whole project. I think it's an amazing story and shows some of the, the best powers of, of commercial exchange. The Roman Empire has fallen, and the area that used to be controlled by the Romans is now dominated by chaos and instability. So monarchs consolidate power, but struggle to maintain control in places far away from their residents. So they grant land control to these feudal lords in exchange for maintaining order. Now, these feudal lords have estates that give them much more food than they can eat, because as Smith says, they're limited by the size of their bellies um, and have very little to exchange surplus food for. So what they do is they give their surplus food to peasants that work the land in order for their servitude. And the peasants then are wholly dependent on the lords. At the same time, some city dwellers called burghers, B-U-R-G-H-E-R-S, were given an exemption from this system, uh, from the feudal system, and started to make stuff like jewelry and other knickknacks. Now, although the feudal lords are limited by the size of their bellies, there are no limits to what Smith calls their, their childish vanity. So they begin to exchange their surplus food with the merchants to get trinkets. Uh, he talks about diamond belt buckles, for example. So the peasants now are able to enter into the commercial world, and they sell trinkets to the lords. So they are dependent on the demand of the lords, though not on anyone in particular. And so this creates a system of what you could say is interdependence rather than dependence. And of course, the prosperity resulting from the incentive to innovate uh, eventually is what liberates the masses from the control of the feudal lords. And Smith is pretty uh, emphatic about noticing that the sequence of events came from no intentions or foresights of the parties involved. Um, and, and his line specifically is, uh, speaking of these two different parties, the 
the feudal lords and the uh, the burghers, neither of them had either the knowledge or foresight of that great revolution which the folly of one and the industry of the other was gradually bringing about. So even though they were only acting in their own, I guess what we could say, rational self-interest and weren't doing this for the the, the better of, of mankind in any sense, um, it still was able to liberate the masses from the feudal system. So the feudal lords who prospered because they were getting all of the benefits from these large lands that were worked on by other people, they were reaping all those benefits, and they used that to trade with other people, and that sort of brought about the capitalist system and eventually undermined them. Is that is that the right idea? I mean, so it brought about the ability for a commercial exchange, because before, when baubles and trinkets weren't necessarily being manufactured, uh, the only thing they could spend this surplus food on was... Uh, basically giving it to peasants for their servitude. He says the the price that the lords paid for these baubles and trinkets could pay them, could give them control over a thousand men. Um, and that's uh, some lyrics from the song, which is um, the price they paid could buy them a thousand different men. And though they get the diamonds, power leaves them and commerce wins instead. Um, and so it, it's just this this really amazing, you know, slow, gradual Revolution, as he says, that comes about not because anyone designed it, um, but because of human action and a decentralization of power. So obviously, you know, if you separate this this world into two different uh, camps, there are the the people selling the goods and then the lords that buy them. Um, and so the the merchants are obviously still dependent on the lords, but not to one entirely. Whereas the peasant was under the control of only his or her feudal landlord. So this this decentralization of power um, gives a lot more effective freedom for kind of everyone involved. So this is a pretty central idea of this revolution, but sort of of Smith and of capitalism, of there not being a design, but it all still working. And, and that's related to, you know, a concept that a lot of economists and non-economists know is the invisible hand, that kind of without any government planning um, or central authority, this decentralized system can... can order can emerge, so to speak. And and so that that is a theme that runs through a lot of his, his th- throughout the wealth of nations. And in this case, it was out of human action and not out of human design, uh, in the words of his contemporary Adam Ferguson, that the silent revolution occurred. Cool. Let's listen. They say beauty is in order What's left over in so few hands But the landlords spell their doom Wanting the jewelry the merchants have They pay goodbye them A thousand different men Though they get the diamond Power leaves them Commerce wins instead
childish vanity. This next song is called The Street Porter and the Philosopher. And also from Wealth of Nations. Also from also from Wealth of Nations. And we have to admit that at the beginning we had a misunderstanding about what a street porter was. A mad Google search to figure out what a street porter was. So I thought it was just someone who sweeps on the street. Apparently it is not. It's someone who carries stuff around, I guess, kind of like a porter in a hotel, but in that uh, in Smith's days, you needed someone to walk around the street and, and carry you know something from point A to point B. And more importantly, he used the idea of the street porter versus the philosopher as these two kind of different extremes of what were seen as the most prestigious uh, or, or glamorous profession, um, and the street porter was kind of the lowliest. How this how this ties in is that when we say the wealth of nations, what it's actually short for is an inquiry into the causes and nature of the wealth of nations. The question at the time was, okay, for most of human existence and for even most of the world right now, everyone's at subsistence level of living. Why in the northwest of Europe suddenly uh, are are certain countries and certain people starting to become rich? And for a lot of people, the easiest explanation was basically a racial one. The farther north from the equator you were and the whiter your skin, the the richer you were. Um, But Smith's explanation was actually that it comes from a country's ability to utilize specialization and division of labor, which we'll talk a little bit more later. But so not only did he think that, you know, he didn't agree with this racial explanation for uh, people's performance, but he really saw even the street porter and the philosopher as equal in worth and dignity. The The differences in their outcomes is not or, or sorry, the, the difference in the skills of the street porter and the skills of the philosopher are actually not all that different. And so when you see they're different, it's actually the result of the division of labor that causes you to think that they're, they have different worth or dignity, rather than it being the cause. And so he sees that the, the person who becomes the philosopher, it's entirely out of circumstance, or the, the person who becomes a street porter. It's not because one is innately more genius than the other. In this context, until we're six years old, and we're all just at daycare or whatever, kids do. Um, You can't really tell the difference between people so much. But then in the context of a modern economy where we can have vast differences in wealth, um, that's where we suddenly start to be convinced that there are these big differences between us. So Smith is sort of saying that the outcomes that you've ended up in are almost by random chance. You got sort of bumped in one direction and you became a philosopher, but you could have easily at age six, been you know bumped in a different direction and become a street porter, and those are both essential for society. And you know this is even radical for right now. Like I, I Albert Einstein is definitely uh, smarter than either of us, and LeBron James was going to be a much better basketball player regardless of uh, his circumstance. Um, but you know Smith, then this is this is a really big difference compared to his contemporaries and and a lot of other philosophers in saying that our differences are actually really small. And uh, we have inequality in worth. In comparison to Aristotle specifically, um, Aristotle wrote that he, you know, he thought that Athenians would never be enslaved. And he suggested that some groups like the barbarians were just bound to be slaves. Um, and he was wrong about that because the Athenians eventually were taken over. And 
more more to the point, um, you know, with our modern conception of of human worth and dignity, I would say that uh, we, you know, we would never say that certain races or certain groups should be should be bound to be slaves. Um, and so that is our line in the song. So Aristotle was wrong about the slaves. Still, that philosopher remains so vain. And then that word vain is actually pretty powerful in in Smith's view of human nature, because it's vanity that drives all of us. And that's kind of a prick at his own vanity, because he was a moral philosopher. And he still saw himself an equal in worth and dignity as the Shreveporter nearby. And in sort of the, the ultimate uh, capitalist line, he he says that you're equal in, in worth or dignity because everyone has the same innate desire to truck, barter, and exchange. Right. So truck, barter, exchange, uh, I mean, very few people use the words truck or barter these days to to describe commercial activity but he does make the like what gives us our humanity is our innate desire to truck barter and exchange and he compares it with animals uh, that can't do that and so he talks about examples of dogs that have different skills and because they don't have the ability in his mind to of, of fellow feeling um, or no dogs have ever traded with each other. They can't, they can't exploit the gains from specialization or division of labor that we see in our economy. And so it's actually the propensity to truck, barter, and exchange is what is unique to human nature and what is what separates us from other species. Deep. Let's take a listen. Six years always seem to be inability Nearly the same, soon changed by modernity And our innate desire to truck, barter, or exchange And you're not any higher in worth or dignity Whether you're paid to think or move on the street Your disposition and genius were made in equity In isolation they'd appear the same Still that philosopher remains So vain Separately can't utilize the different skills, strength, swiftness, or docility, and no innate desire to truck, barter, or exchange. 
And you're not any higher In worth or dignity Whether you pay to think or move On the street Your disposition and genius were made In equity So Aristotle's wrong about the slaves Still that philosopher Our innate desire to truck barter or exchange, and you're not any higher in worth or dignity. Smith wrote these two books in the middle of the 1700s, right? Correct. And he was Scottish, and I think someone Scottish or almost anyone at the time wouldn't have traveled that much, wouldn't have that much knowledge of the world outside their home. Right, but for our next song, it is called Chinese Earthquake. So how does that tie in, you may ask? Uh, and it is true. He didn't travel much. He had spent most of his time um, in in the UK and then spent a little bit like a year or a summer in France. But otherwise, um, his observations from the world, his his data set of experiences was just reading books. And so... Chinese earthquake is actually uh, a reflection of that um, when he talks about the limits of our fellow feeling or sympathy. So if you, he had never, I imagine, met someone from China, and if he had never been there, um, how does he put himself in the shoes of someone in China? So he gives this, this story that, so there's an earthquake in China, and you hear that tons of people living there die. Uh, you know, it's a sad story. So you, 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 you mourn about it, you, you feel bad, and then you kind of go about your day, and you we probably won't lose any sleep over it. But if, in contrast, if someone told you that your little pinky finger was going to be cut off the next day, uh, you wouldn't sleep a wink. And now, your ability to put yourself in the shoes of these of these Chinese people is basically non-existent. You've never met them. You can't picture what China looks like. Uh, so it doesn't affect you nearly as much as the pain of losing your pinky finger, which obviously uh, is something that you don't need to try very hard to realize that it's going to be very painful. So this might be similar to how now if you read the news, you, you might get you know desensitized to hearing a lot of tragic news from one part of the world. And you say, okay, I get it. There's some other you know tragedy that's befallen someplace far away from me. And maybe the first time you care, but you, you, you eventually become a bit numb to it. Is that a bit of the same idea? I don't know if this is too much of a stretch, but um, when you read those news articles in, let's say, uh, North American or Canadian media, uh, what do they like to single out? It's whether there were any Americans or Canadians that died. And it's because we can relate to, you know, one explanation is we can relate to those people much more than we can relate to inhabitants of a country we've never been to. And again, you know, like when these terrorist attacks happen, when one happens in Paris and one happens in Beirut, they're very different uh, reactions on social media. 
and you know not to go too much into the the moral relativism of any of this but um you know through smith's lens the paris attack gets a lot more attention from people in america because they know french people they travel they've traveled to paris uh maybe they did a semester abroad there Um, french food exactly they feel much more connected to it um because their capacity for fellow feeling which is is not infinite um means that they have limits to it compare that to uh some sort of attack in beirut where uh, much fewer people have been to can use their their mechanism of fellow feeling to really understand the the suffering, which of course is equivalent to any attack that happens in a place like Paris. And so, what does Smith say we should do about this? He's saying that you know we don't have enough capacity to care enough about about people who are far away from us. Well, maybe the first question is: Does he think we should do anything about this? Is this a flaw that we have that we need to overcome, or is that okay? And the you know society and the economy works with that. I think, so philosophers have always recognized this this asymmetry, um, and he mentions two camps that try to provide a, a mitigation technique. So one camp uh, said that we should put our own suffering at the level of uh, everyone else's. Um, and so basically, we should just be very numb and, like, and realize that our suffering is so inconsequential. Uh, and so that was the Stoic uh, school of philosophy. And then another tried to say, we should make everyone's suffering uh, as important to us as we consider our own. So just experience the world as tons of suffering, tons of guilt. Uh, and he, th- those are the Catholics, um, which I always thought was funny in my Catholic upbringing. Um, but he says, okay, you know, this isn't necessarily a great thing, but it, it makes sense because of our, our limited capacity for fellow feeling. But what he does say we do is after, you know, if we were given this trade-off, my little pinky finger or millions of people dying from an earthquake in China. No one in their right mind would say, yeah, I'm going to choose my pinky finger, even if it gives us more pain. He realizes that we consult what he says is the man within, um, the love of what is honorable and noble. And, and we, we realize the absurdity of our own self-love, and this, this tempers kind of our, our own instinct to treat ourselves or our family or our tribe uh, as being much more important than everyone else. So the solution here is this is this man within that even though your first instinct might be I'm going to get more pain from the pinky getting cut off if I think about it for a second this man within tells me that's not the choice you should take because it's, it, this would be devastating. Yeah, and and, and so he he actually cites uh the impartial spectator and and what he says is it is stronger power the inhabitant of the breast the man within calls to us. It is from him only that we learn the real littleness of ourselves and of whatever relates to ourselves, and the nature misrepresentations of self-love can be corrected only by the eye of the impartial spectator. It is a stronger love, a more powerful affection, which generally takes place upon such occasions, the love of what is honorable and noble. So again, going back to the the desire to be lovely and not just loved, uh, we we do seek justice. We do want love of honor, what is honorable and noble. Great, and those ideas are in the lyrics. Here we go. Where I'm sleeping Tragedy shakes the earth Myriad of its inhabitants The Chinese Empire swallowed whole 
reflect upon misfortune What for European trade Return to pleasure all the same He calls to me The man within Showing the powerful affection His honorable Neighborly love My fellow feelings Just so limited If you told me that tomorrow My little finger would be gone I'd lie awake in real disturbance Do you tremble at the thought He calls to me The man within You may have noticed if you're an owner of our physical CD that the inner picture is uh, of a pin factory, and this comes from Dennis Diderot's encyclopedia. Um, and Smith was inspired by seeing that image to describe kind of the mechanization of division of labor and specialization. And it's one of the most iconic images of Smith. There's probably Invisible Hand is the most recognizable, and then Pin Factory is a commonly quoted or you know, recognized uh, image that he invokes. His explanation, as, as we mentioned earlier, for why a country is rich is their ability to utilize division of labor and specialization. And this is kind of, I mean... To simplify it, you can just say the moral of the story is that like we all achieve more as a team. Um, so he describes the different tasks that happen in a pin factory. And when you divide it, when everyone specializes on one of those tasks, um, a group of people can produce much more than one of them uh, could do on their own. And we have this line in the song, the master of a family knows this truth, that you don't make it at home what it costs less to buy. Right, and so that's actually uh, a reference to a later passage in Wealth of Nations, but still connects on the same theme. So if you have one pin factory employee doing all the steps, um, he says that you know they wouldn't be able to make to make many in a day. So extend that to what every human needs in all of their day to day life. So if if one person in isolation grows their own food, builds their own house, fixes their own uh, plumbing they are not nearly as efficient as when you pay someone else to do that who is who is specialized in it and is much more uh, efficient. He has this line that 
It is the maxim of every prudent master of a family, never attempt to make at home what it will cost him more to make than to buy. So, you know, the brain surgeon or Steve Jobs shouldn't, like, their time is so valuable that they should really be paying someone else to do this um, who whose skills in the context of division of labor can kind of generate more efficient gains. And I think this is a really common and accepted idea to everyone. I mean, you'd of course come across it in Economics 101, but most people, without taking any economics training, this sort of naturally makes sense to them. It's really part of our society. Yeah, I think it's so so much a part of our day-to-day life that we don't realize it. I mean, I have no handyman experience. I cannot, I just can't do anything around the house. If my car breaks down on the side of the road, I call AAA. And when you, when you think about it, like people are, I mean, in a sense, they're not as independent when they only specialize on these one skills, but this interdependence actually has the benefited or has the unintended benefit of us all being kind of connected to each other and needing each other. And so going back to our song, Silent Revolution, the word interdependence, right? So rather than dependence, it's interdependence. We're all connected because we all need each other's different skills. Why don't we take a listen? Let's do it. Don't make it home 
So we just heard the song Pin Factory, which is all about how specialization can be beneficial for an economy and for society. And the next song is called Dumb Specialist. It's also from the Wealth of Nations, but it, it sounds like it's the exact opposite idea, like specialization is dangerous or it's bad for society. How does Smith square those two ideas? And this is an important point because uh, a lot of people have this caricature impression of Smith uh, that he's all about selfishness and the, the free market, you know, unfettered is, is the way to go. Um, but he, he realizes that there are downsides to specialization of division of labor. And, and in this instance, actually, Karl, Karl Marx even uh, wrote about this in the Communist Manifesto. Marx was a big reader of Smith, so it, it, it's, it's very acknowledged and apparent to a lot of us. So what he says is that when we specialize in this modern commercial economy, we basically narrow our actions to one or two simple operations. And so we're, we're not using those other parts of our brain than if we had to take care of everything. So, you know, I don't use the part of my brain that uh, is necessary to fix a car or to do any handiwork around the house. Um, and so as the economy demands more specialization, you have this atrophy of mind. And he, he recognized that this isn't good. It just makes people dumb and, and very numb to, uh, to many aspects of life. So you're bored because you're constantly doing, you know, Excel work at work, and that's just day in, day out. You're doing some repetitive data task or whatever repetitive task, and that's bad for your happiness. Yeah, and, and it's also bad for public institutions because you don't have a well-informed electorate. And actually, it's from this that he derives a justification for public education, giving people a wide set of skills, like at a base level of mathematics and language and, and philosophy and, and writing and whatnot, um, is, is a good way to counteract this negative side effect of specialization. And to be clear, he, he does, you know, a lot of the book is descriptive rather than prescriptive, but he does make a moral case for the market economy because he sees it as the the best and, and potentially only way at this time of getting people out of poverty. So he, he does think that this is a good system, but he knows it's not perfect and or mitigating the effects of this intellectual atrophy uh, through through education is is one way to do it. So people often think of Smith as very laissez-faire capitalist, and it's more, you know, socialism that wants to have these additional institutions like education and healthcare um, to to help sort of fix society. But Smith actually had a, some of these ideas himself. It sounds like he he recognized the the limitations. Throughout the book, uh, he, he does talk about um, some naturally distortive or corrupting effects of the market economy. And one of them, uh, you know, he, he knows that special interests like merchants or universities or the church will uh, impose unnecessary and unfair influence on the public through, uh, through public policy. And then in this case, uh, you know, he recognizes that specialization is not all good. And uh, some sort of public provision of education uh, is good. Um, it, but he, So he compares this then to, to societies of hunters and shepherds. Um, and so our line from the song is, for the hunters and shepherds, though their state is so rude, every man is a warrior, industrious too. Again, if you go back to civilizations where people aren't trading much or specializing, they have to do a little bit of everything. And of course, their state is so rude, which means it's, it's 
doesn't have as much economic uh, wealth or progress. They have to do a little bit of everything. And the everyman is a warrior, especially, you know, at the time, people saw, okay, what are markets and commercial activity going to do for what they called martial spirit, which is your interest in defending your country at war. And, uh, and Smith recognized, actually, that people in a commercial economy will abhor the life of a soldier. They'll just kind of sit in their luxurious house and, uh, and, and not be as inclined to, to go to war. And, you know, I would say that maybe this is a positive thing if we accept it as truth, that it's a positive thing today. But, of course, every man is a warrior in these, uh, less, in these economically poor societies. And we've got this line in here, which I love. Will I forget how to read my intellect atrophies? I'm drawn to superstition from the routine of my trade. Yeah, and so what, what he recognized in, in, in going back to, uh, you know, the, the well-informed electorate is that when people get so dumb and numb from specialization, uh, they can be drawn to kind of like pseudoscience and superstition. And so his, his, his line is, the more they are instructed, the less liable they are to the delusions of enthusiasm and superstition, which among ignorant nations frequently occasion the most dreadful disorders. An instructed and intelligent people, besides, are always more decent and orderly than an ignorant and stupid one. Pro-education Smith. Yeah. Let's listen. What a guy. Through division of labor, so improved and refined, with so much variety of goods I can try, and all that specialization. At the cost of my mind A few operations Take all my time And from this mindless employment Will I forget how to read my intellect atrophy? 
ocean cannot be saved. Ten years of education, I'll be okay. Ten We've made it to the last song on the CD. Man of Luxury. Man of Luxury. And it's a, it's actually a classic story which predates Smith by many years. Can you tell us about what it was? Yeah, I'd say that the general narrative is, uh, is, is nothing too new, but it does fit in nicely to, to his, his overall framework. So the son of a poor man puts himself in the place of a rich person he sees riding a carriage down the street and thinks about how great his life would be in comparison to what he has now. So he works hard all of his life, seeking to attain that desired state, but only to realize as he's about to die that his luxury did not get him tranquility. And again, if you look at this through Smith's framework of fellow feeling, the poor man's son puts himself in the shoes of the rich person and thinks, wow, that'd be great. Or in the words from the song, if I attained all that, I'd be at ease. Through that lifetime of toil and pain and laboring, uh, eventually on the deathbed, there are some regrets, regrets and he realizes that the luxuries didn't get him the tranquility uh, that he estimated. What does Smith mean when he talks about tranquility? I think that's a word that we don't use as commonly in the same way. My read of it is that tranquility, I mean, it's kind of a, a peace, peace, peace of mind. Um, and so he never talks really, he, he doesn't use the word happiness like we would today, but I think tranquility is the ideal, right? So in economics, we say utility. And Though it's not the same as happiness, you know, a lot of times we, we fall into thinking that they're, uh, they're synonyms. But tranquility is just the ideal kind of just being at peace with your surroundings and, you know, enlightenment, I guess you could even say. And Smith's saying this is, this is what people should strive for. And if you're just uh, idolizing a rich person and trying to achieve that, you might, you might not actually get there. So you, you sacrifice th- this in this, this story... Uh, the poor man's son sacrificed everything in order to get his riches. And then, you know, biggest regret, he's on his deathbed and realizes it wasn't worth it. And, th- and this is another instance of how Smith sees us, our pursuit of wealth uh, is not necessarily this 100% awesome thing. He, he knows that, you know, in our last song, we talked about the corruption of the mind from specialization. Well, people can really, in pursuit of their vanity do some very ridiculous things uh, thinking that it will make them happy when it doesn't. And, and oftentimes it's too late. What I, what I would note, though, is that uh, Smith, Smith points out that society benefits from this disillusion in the sense that people exerting themselves for innovation and cultivation makes us all better off, though those doing the innovation don't gain personally as much as they predicted. So, you know, Brian Wilson drove himself crazy making the album Pet Sounds. 
Um, but we all benefit because we all get to listen to it. And then the people that in, come up with the world's greatest innovations, they might do it in the pursuit of wealth. That doesn't make them so happy, but we all benefit from their innovations. So it's kind of nice to have the Steve Jobs and Elon Musks of the world who... They're doing the hard work for us. Yeah, we, we just sit back and enjoy our iPhone. Yeah, so thanks for listening. And uh, here's our last song, Man of Luxury. Filled with anger and ambition, I see all those riches. If I attained all that I'd be at ease. Oh, the pain and inconvenience from my small little cottage. Obligation, sorrow, and fatigue. Maybe I could labor with such industry find the greatness that give me tranquility inside I Then someday I'll be a man of luxury through the toil and the pain I'll attain felicity. Then some way it's not the same as a light of tranquility and all of that time was for meaningless utility.
as I lie on my deathbed, that I don't wish I work so very hard. Body and Mind sounds like it could be like a product line of shampoo or something. Probably the the sister product to this album could be some sort of um, hygiene line. 